Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, A New Nation. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 47, verses 13 to 28, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, God's People and Human Governments. The relationship between human governments and the people of God, well, that's always been a complicated matter. On the one hand, Romans 13 is very clear that the people of God are required to submit to human governments. There are occasions where this might be questioned. When the governing body of the Sanhedrin demanded the apostles stop preaching about Jesus, they responded by saying, we must obey God rather than men. And so from this, Christians today have typically said that We obey governments right up to the point where they ask us to do something that violates our faith. And at that junction, we defer to the greater authority of Jesus. Yes, but as we all know, things tend to get a bit more complicated. In our era and in our culture, Christians have typically supported a political philosophy that curbs the power of government over our lives in favor of giving greater freedom to the individual. Now, there's a a great deal of debate as to which areas of life we should cede to government and which areas of life we think we should insist on being under the control of the individual. But however we come out in that matter, most Christians agree that government should be given authority over things like police and fire and emergency services and defense and so forth. Furthermore, most of us agree that individuals should have the right to own property All land should not belong to the state. And furthermore, as I live in Canada, most Canadian Christians, at least I think, disagree with their American friends about the role of government in medical insurance. But most Christians, no matter where they live, would argue that government should not be able to dictate the activities of the church. But most people also agree that government is required to protect its citizens and to provide some goods and services to its citizens, and also to play a role to ensure the future prosperity that it's achievable. I say all that because a great many people are troubled by Joseph's role in enslaving the people of Egypt, and, and what he does does cause a great deal of discussion as to how God's people, when they're in government, are to administer the limits of governmental authority. So let's start at the beginning. Genesis 47 verse 13 says, Now there was no food in the land, for the famine was very severe, so the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. You know, I know that I've started this study in mid-course, so a little review is in order. Pharaoh has had a dream, and Joseph has been called to come and interpret the dream. Joseph declared that God had spoken. The first seven years would be years of abundance, and then the second seven years would be years of famine. And so, Joseph is given leadership, and he sets out a plan of mitigating the upcoming crisis. During the seven years of bumper crops, Joseph stored up grain in abundance, and the passage said he did so like the sand of the sea. It's a basic principle of wise political leadership. During years of a booming economy, it is wise for governments to build up an excess, ready to be spent when the inevitable bear market hits. And so when the years of famine came, Egypt was in a position of leadership. Peoples from ravaged countries came to her to buy food. And that's because of the wise political leadership of Joseph. Egypt was prepared for the famine and even prospered during the famine. 
The trick now was to use that prosperity wisely in the days to come. Well, that's the background, and that leads us to today's text and the question of how government ought to function. So I'm reading Genesis 47, 14 to 26. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him in the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So let's rehearse what we've just read so that, you know, we don't fail to understand how Egypt was transformed throughout this famine. There are several stages that occur in the seven years of famine. So we've got to remember that Pharaoh has entrusted the economy as well as the famine relief efforts into the hands of Joseph. And here's what's occurred. In the first stage, which is what we read about in verse 14, Joseph takes all the money from the people. He sells grain until all the money for buying has run out. At that juncture, the people are penniless, and yet the famine goes on. Then in verses 15 to 17, we learn that the money is essentially gone. The people are in poverty. And so in stage two, the people give up their livestock. I mean, what's the purpose of caring for livestock when they're starving? But still the famine persists and all the money and the livestock are gone. What are they to do? And so in verses 18 to 21, the people say, look, we've got nothing left but our land and our bodies. And so Joseph accepts their land in order to buy food. And once the land is gone, he buys up their bodies. That is, they are now put into servitude to Pharaoh. And thus, by the time everything's over, the people own nothing. Pharaoh owns everything, which is the kind of government that most of us hate today. We want government out of our affairs, and yet here's Joseph, this man we revere as not only the savior of the Israelites, but also the savior of the people of Egypt. But we might suggest, yeah, he did save them, but at what price? Pharaoh increases his power, the government intrudes into every part of life, and the people are left alive to serve the government. 
I know that reading this passage can make some of us feel angry. You know, wow, Joseph, in gratefulness to Pharaoh's kindness to you and your family, you turn around now and you bless Pharaoh so much so that Pharaoh now extends his power base into every sphere of economic activity in the land. It seems that people have been exploited, and it's no wonder that Pharaoh likes Joseph so much. Look, I I don't pretend to be an economist. And second, I want to say that I believe in free enterprise and the private ownership of land. But allow me to comment. As I record this program today, we're living in a time of a global crisis. Global pandemic has shut down a great part of the Earth's economies. Millions upon millions of people suddenly have lost their jobs. And immediately, what we have seen is that government has rightfully stepped in and they've spent billions upon billions upon billions of dollars to help out both the unemployed and suffering and struggling businesses as well. And whatever you think of Joseph, please understand that unlike our governments, Joseph racked up a huge reserve in the days of a bull market. And in contrast, my nation, Canada, continued to borrow ceaselessly in times of prosperity. And so now when inevitably a crisis has come, We simply borrow more. And understand this. The government doesn't have money. It only has the power of taxation. With all the debt before this crisis, we have now ensured that generations after us will be forced to pay for this crisis in our day. They will be forced to pay because we borrowed when the times were good, and then we put our borrowing into overdrive when the times were bad. Again, I don't pretend to be an economist, and I am aware that many economists will argue that borrowing is good. I think, however, we now have a debt that no one can repay, and that in the future, we will not be able to pay the interest on the debt, never mind the principal. If you want servitude, as of now, we've all been sold into it. June is one of the most significant months of the year financially for Back to the Bible Canada. Like every family, individual, and organization across the country, we've had to take steps to adjust our expenses so that all the Bible teaching resources you've come to expect remain available right across the country at no charge. And because of a group of generous donors who share our hearts for Bible teaching, they've committed to doubling your gift this month. The ministry budget target for our fiscal year end is $365,000. Could we ask you to pray that we might meet this target? And if you're able, acknowledging the very real challenges many of us are facing, would you provide a financial gift toward this goal? Remember, every dollar you give will be matched up to $95,000 so that your gift has doubled the impact. To make your fiscal year end gift today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The Bible has a great deal to say about debt and about borrowing. Let's try to do a quick review. First, the Bible thinks that debt is a form of slavery. Proverbs 22 verse seven says, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. That's because every single paycheck The lender takes what's due to him before you get to use anything else. 
And furthermore, if you lose your source of income, the lender will swoop down without mercy. The lender owns you now. And by the way, my wife and I have lived this way. We think a mortgage on your home is fine. It's an appreciating asset, but it has to be a modest sum and it shouldn't impoverish you. We think a loan on a car is foolishness. We think it's better to drive a junker and then save every single month until you can afford the car you want. Why be a slave? In Canada today, most people have loans that are so large that when the coronavirus crisis hit, they had no means of taking care of themselves. And so the government that also had no means of taking care of you either paid you out by a loan, which all of us will pay for generations of economic slavery. Notice how different this was from the days of Joseph. When the crisis was over, there were no debts. <laughs> ah, yeah, but you say, the king owned everyone's land and the people spent the rest of their lives working for the king. Now, hang on for a, a moment, will you? I'm going to get to that. Let's look at some other things that the Bible says about debt. Whenever you borrow, you're borrowing against your own future, and it's a future you can't be assured of. James 4, 13 to 14 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will get into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And yet we borrow with the assurance that tomorrow will always be there and we will always be able to pay. Proverbs 21 verse 20 says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. And might I add, he not only devours it, he also devours that which he doesn't yet have. And then he adds to his wickedness by letting other generations pay for it. Look at Psalm 37 verse 21. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. Notice the difference between two people. The one has a wanter that he just can't shut off, and so he borrows to feed all the needs and wants that he has. The righteous refuses such a scenario and because of that builds up a surplus and is able to give. Now, that's one more thing about debt and the story of the Bible. In the Bible, debt is a metaphor for sin. Here's the tragedy. All of us have racked up an enormous debt before God. It's called the debt of our own sin. The sin grows for a lifetime, and we've not paid it back. In the end of the day comes the final reckoning, which is the final judgment. And the sad news is that suffering for all eternity will not pay the debt back. Indeed, it won't even make a dent on the interest to the loan. But here's the good news. Christ, in graciousness, has paid the debt on our behalf and on behalf of all who trust in him. And in response, he has purchased us for God. We have become his servants. We've now lost our rights to ourselves. Our lives now belong to him who has purchased us by his blood. Was that a good deal? I would say it's a better one than we could have imagined. For the one who now owns us is the one who loves us. And so the Christian life never begins by asserting our independence to do what we want. It begins by acknowledging that we've been delivered from the debt of sin and have been delivered over to be servants of God. And as Jesus taught us, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Yep, God now owns us, but what a wonderful arrangement. And in a sense, although it's not a perfect analogy, that's what we have in Genesis 47. Look again at verses 23 and 24. And Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is the seed for you. 
and you shall sow the land. And at harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourself and your household, and as food for your little ones. Well, clearly, the people have lost ownership to their land, but, you know, some have said they might be able to buy it back. I don't know. After this, they are, in effect, leasing the land from Pharaoh. And the rate of lease is 20% of their income. In effect, Joseph has put in place a 20% income taxation rate. And if I were to compare that to Canada, we today have an income taxation rate of 33%. But as we know, that's not all. Our government taxes us when we make money, and then it taxes us when we spend money. And furthermore, it taxes us when we save money. And if you happen to purchase property and sell it, they'll tax you on that as well. You know, the Fraser Institute, which is a right-wing think tank, estimates that in Canada, tax-free day is now June the 10th. And that means that we are paying 44% of all we make to the government. And once our present pandemic is over and we end up getting a sense of just how much higher our debt is, well, I personally would be surprised if it remains at 44%. So let me put it frankly. I myself would take Joseph's 20% tax rate after a major emergency. And furthermore, we need to factor in another matter. Since we learned that Egypt is susceptible to famine, the present arrangement virtually guarantees the ability of the federal government to handle any future crisis and as well as guarantees the well-being of its citizens. Again, we might quibble about Joseph's taking of the people's land, and sure enough, that, that seems like a legitimate criticism. But at the same time, he has navigated his way through a crisis that allows everyone to live and prosper. And it is this that leads to the response that we find in verses 25 and 26. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants of Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. That is, the 20% taxation rate didn't gradually increase over time. Indeed, since we know that Moses wrote the book of Genesis, that would mean that 400 years later, that rate of taxation stood fixed. You know, years ago, Bob Dylan wrote a song entitled, You've Got to Serve Somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. Maybe you don't like servitude. Maybe you don't like living within your means. The governments of Western countries certainly have demonstrated that they won't serve the constraints of living within their means. But if they won't serve the constraints of fiscal faithfulness, they will serve the multi-trillion dollar lending industries of this world. And for those of us who demand to know where it is that all of our tax money is going, well, listen up, Bubba, that's where it goes. Since we have demanded ever more government services, we have succeeded in taking close to half of all that we make and giving it willingly over to them. You have to serve somebody. It is interesting to track the debt load in Canada. Until about 1970, the debt that we carried as a nation was small and relatively easy to deal with. But then in a period of about 20 years, the debt became so massive that on a graph, it looks like you're staring at Mount Everest. And during this time, we decided that we would serve the cruel financiers. Yeah, we've got to serve somebody. See, the beauty of serving the Lord is that, as I've said, the burden of Jesus is light. Yeah, he will dictate how you spend your money. He's going to dictate how you use your sexuality. He's going to dictate how you treat your enemies and how you worship God. But ah, 
What a light burden indeed. What a delightful servitude. What a wonderful privilege of worship. Well, now, how does Joseph's form of governance work out for the people of Israel? Chapter 47, verses 27 to 28 says, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. When we started our study, we noticed that when Jacob first met Pharaoh, he said that the days of this earth were evil days. And we noticed that Jacob had forgotten all the grace that had been extended to him over those years. But now in the last 17 years of his life, Jacob lives in the land that is orderly, where the economy allows his children to prosper and become fruitful and go from a family to a nation, the people of God. His family gains possessions and increase in wealth, and eventually they're ready to leave Egypt and inherit the promised land. Now, I know, I know, there are some dramatic twists in that plot line. But for our purposes, when government functions the way in which God has ordained they should, when it deals fairly and when its burdens are light, there is a great blessing to everyone and also for the people of God. And it is for this reason that I would say that instead of, and I know I've been very critical of government, but I know that God's purpose is that we, God's people, should continually pray for our government. Let's show ourselves to support the government, but let's also seek to influence that government can truly act for the good of all. John, you know the topic of government can be a a contentious one, and we live in politically polarized days. So how do we as Christians navigate the complexity and remain faithful to God? Yeah, I, Ben, it's, it's such an important question, and, and I may have sounded like I'm very critical of something that are happening right now, but I haven't meant to accuse anyone of anything outside of this. I, I think the role of the people of God is not to be loyal to a given party, but rather we are to stand out of the political situation and act as a prophetic voice that speaks God's truth to our world. Because if the governments of the world hear the word of God through the people that God has appointed, it will go better for them and for the people as a whole. So um, whenever we align ourselves with the party, we don't do well. So I don't think we should ever do that, but we should continue to hold forth the role of the prophetic. And I've tried to play that role here, and so that's been my aim. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue in our study in the book of Genesis, A New Nation, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. It's happening. If you've listened to Laugh Again in the past, now the opportunity is available to not only hear Phil, but to see him in action. This month, we make the official launch of Laugh Again TV. Five minutes of storytelling, laughter, hope, and joy all wrapped into a video message from Laugh Again and Phil Calloway. So check out Laugh Again TV at laughagain.ca or by going to the Laugh Again TV channel on YouTube a new, inspirational, joy-filled program every week. If you check out Laugh Again TV on YouTube, remember to subscribe to the channel for free and never miss another episode. Thank you for continuing to support in these challenging days. Your donations keep this unique ministry alive. 
To learn more, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.